You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar." But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are listening now. We pray that you would uh, teach us, shape us, form us, uh, even in the difficult passages of your scriptures to us. So God, we pray now that the name of Christ would be high and lifted up in our hearts and our minds through the our time together in Leviticus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night. If you want to head out the door, if you're a fourth through a sixth grader with Cedric and Stephen here uh, to think about Leviticus. Boys, you you got a a bunch of kids with you. Hopefully we don't have a uh, Lord of the Flies situation upstairs. Uh, This is going to be great. Uh, hey, also, Michelle, thanks for playing drums. I, yeah, I don't think you guys knew that she could play the drums. Next week will be the trombone, and then the accordion, and then a jazz flute uh, in three weeks from Michelle. Uh, but, thanks, Michelle. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan. Uh, let's just get into it. Uh, that was some crazy stuff that you just heard Stephanie read. Uh, I told you last week that the plan is to work through the book of Leviticus in five weeks, so we need to jump right in, because we've got a lot of work to do. Here's an initial goal that I have for us in this book together. Uh, In five weeks, I hope that you at least understand Leviticus, and hopefully you love it. Uh, How many of you have either heard someone make a joke or you've made a joke yourself that, man, I had good intentions uh, with my Bible reading plan on January 1st, and then at some point in Leviticus, I kind of just fell off the map, right? Uh, Never again, I hope, will be the case for us. I want us to be oriented well in the Levitical landscape so that we don't get lost in the wilderness of ritual and sacrifice and blood and purity and law and on and on and on. So we definitely could have spent six months. We could have spent five weeks on these five sacrifices of uh, chapters one through seven, but what I hope for today and for the next five weeks is that we get a 30,000 foot view of understanding the entire Levitical sacrificial system and this book as a whole. And why is that important? Why is it important to understand this book? Why is the book of Leviticus important? 
Well, actually, before we answer that question, can we think about first why Leviticus is so hard? Why do we all quit our Bible reading plans in this book? A few thoughts. First of all, this book is really foreign. Oftentimes, I think we, while we know that the whole Bible is an ancient document of an ancient people, uh, we can, in other parts of the Bible, kind of easily imagine ourselves in those narratives, in those parts of the story, and imagining a life that is different, but maybe not terribly different than ours. But not with this book, not with Leviticus. It is jarring how culturally different this book is than our lives in the 21st century West. I'm not sure about First United Methodist rules for weddings here. We haven't done one in this building yet, uh, but I'm pretty confident that First United Methodist wouldn't let us do like sparklers or silly string or even like throw rice uh, in this building at a wedding. What if though, not on a once a year thing with sparklers and rice. What if like every time we gathered here, several of you brought animals into this place, uh, you slaughtered them, got buckets of blood that we started tossing around, and then we just started a barbecue up here on stage, and then just like charred the ceiling every week, every day that we gathered here. This is a foreign world. But it's also hard, this book is, because there's just no narrative except for seven or so verses about the short but tragic story about Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, Leviticus is just instruction or law. Now, not many of us, including the most legal eagle lawyer of you out there, uh, not many of us just love to like curl up next to the fire with a book of law code and jurisprudence. That's just not what we like. Uh, and even if you do love legal law code and jurisprudence, uh, if you didn't understand the world and the law code that you're reading, your eyes just begin to glaze over real fast. So there are some other difficulties that we'll touch and go on throughout the next five weeks. But first of all, is it actually important for us to understand, know, study, and love this book. Is Leviticus important? Will this just be a waste of time that we could have better spent five weeks in in a more easy and better book of the Bible like Ephesians or something? Well, as we've considered a number of times, our God does not waste words. All scripture, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, by which he is contextually referring to all scripture as the Old Testament, what we consider the Old Testament, is breathed out by God and is profitable for us in all areas of life. So if that's true, then this book is profitable for our lives. But here's the thing. Consider this hypothetical. I don't know why this hypothetical would ever be true, but let's pretend, this doesn't make any theological sense, but let's pretend that you and I, we do not have what we know as the New Testament. We do have the Old Testament story and we do know about what happened with Jesus. If we were going to get together and write out the New Testament, how often do you think we would refer to or quote from the book of Leviticus? My guess is not that often. Do you wanna know what the reality is though? When the New Testament authors refer back to Old Testament books, where does Leviticus come in, uh, in the rank order? Number six. This is the sixth most important or most quoted from book from the New Testament authors. They think that this book is unbelievably important. So what I think this 
means for us is that we will not understand the New Testament. We will not understand the gospel. We will not understand Jesus until we first comprehensively understand this book. So it's, in my, hope, it's my hope that in five weeks you'll agree with me in that. I've told a couple of you that I've already started studying Ephesians uh, a little on the side. That's what the plan is, what, the book, what book we're going to uh, preach through next. And I'm telling you, I have never, I don't think I've ever really understood Ephesians before until all of this work that I've been doing in Leviticus. Leviticus has like just unlocked the theology of the New Testament. I've understood it. I think we can understand the gospel, but man, the whole New Testament, I hope after spending four or five weeks or five weeks together here in this book is just going to come alive. So let me just spoil the ending here and tell you what this book is about. Leviticus is actually about what the rest of the Bible is about. And it's this, how will a just and holy God dwell in joyful communion with a sinful and rebellious people? Especially without destroying them. How will a just and holy God dwell in joyful communion with a sinful and rebellious people? At the end of Exodus, God has brought his people out of slavery. He has covenanted with them. And he had them build a tabernacle. This is like a a tent, a mobile temple. He had them build a tabernacle that he might dwell with them. This is often, you even heard Stephanie refer to this as the tent of meeting, the meeting place where God meets and dwells with his people. But at the end of Exodus 40, we read this. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then flip over to Leviticus 1.1, and we read this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Meaning, God is inside the tent of meeting and is speaking to the outside Moses from the tent of meeting. However, flip over to the very next book, the book of Numbers, and we read this in Numbers 1.1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. God, Moses, now both in the tent of meeting. This is what Leviticus is all about. How do people move from near the presence of God, but ultimately outside, to in, to dwelling with him? Something has happened in Leviticus where being with God and hearing from God has moved from the tent to in the tent. So what happens? We're going to frame our time together today all about just this, living in God's presence. So we're going to think through three title headings tonight of living in God's presence before Leviticus, living in God's presence in Leviticus, and living in in God's presence now. So, first of all, living in God's presence before Leviticus. When I say before Leviticus, where do you think we need to start? Like before, before, like the very beginning, like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 are just so unbelievably important to understanding the rest of the Bible, but they are of utmost significance for us to understand what's happening in the book of Leviticus. In the same way that Adam in Genesis 2 was to work and keep, he was to work and keep the garden, The priests also in the tabernacle system are to work and keep the tabernacle in the same way that God walked back and forth with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.8. He, in the exact same language, walks about with his people in the tabernacle in Leviticus 26. 
Just as there is gold and precious jewels in the garden, there should be the exact same gold and precious jewels in the tabernacle structure. In Genesis 3, after their rejection of God as trustworthy and as good and as true, God's people are banished away to the east from the garden, to the east from the place of God's presence. His place now being forever guarded by angelic beings. Now, the tabernacle structure is, every time it moves and is set up again, it is to be oriented to the east, so that people moving back to the west through increasing levels of ritual and curtains embroidered with angelic guardians can once again dwell with God. The tabernacle system is absolutely bringing the people back into an Eden-like existence where they once again might dwell with the all-powerful, all-good, all-creator God of the universe. This is something that we thought through way more in depth back in November of 2019 when we were going through the book of Exodus and we were thinking about the tabernacle. Uh, But I said then that Israel is to look around and then look toward the inside of the tabernacle and summon up the ideal world of their imagination. The tabernacle is like looking into Eden, ideal and separate from the mundane and the bland desert wilderness in which they were living, looking towards green gardens again of dwelling with God. But one thing that we didn't really consider much in Exodus is Eden as the mountain of the Lord. I was actually meaning to bring this up. Let me grab this book. This book, uh, if you were considering to invest $18.99 in anything this year, maybe don't put it in a Roth IRA or something, invest it in this book. Uh, This book is so good. This book is called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of the Book of of Leviticus by Michael Morales. Um, In this book, something that I have just been so helped by in this book is... uh, understanding the whole Bible of that of like mountain encounters with God. In Genesis 2, we see a spring river that flows out of Eden that then forms and feeds the other four major rivers of the area. How do rivers move? By gravity. Gravity, water moving downhill. And so, uh, with gravity, what Genesis 1 and 2 are suggesting is that Eden is a place up high. The water, spring river that is feeding four rivers below it is of high elevation. Uh, What many have described as a cosmic mountain where people go to meet with God. The prophet Ezekiel thinks about Eden in exactly these kinds of ways. He tells Israel in Ezekiel 28 that they were once in Eden, the garden of God. They were there on the holy mountain Ezekiel thinks about the Garden of Eden where people once dwelled with God as God's holy mountain where God meets with his people. And so the narrative that follows throughout Genesis and Exodus could then be described as a series of mountain encounters with God. You could say that Genesis and Exodus are really about the question of Psalm 24 that Kyle read for us earlier in our call to worship. Who shall ascend the hill or who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And so Noah sacrifices and enters into covenant with the, with the Lord at Mount Ararat in Genesis 8 and 9. After this, in Genesis 11, the people of Babel in trying to ascend. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Morales says their answer to this question, if ever they pause to ask, 
was we will. We will ascend the mountain of the Lord. We'll build this big tower to come into his presence. But their ascension was all about their name and their worship. And so it's rejected by God. In Genesis 22, God calls Abraham and Isaac to Mount Moriah where he meets with them and he provides the sacrifice on their behalf. In Exodus 3, Moses meets with God in the burning bush on the mountain. And then in Exodus 19, God covenants with his people at Mount Sinai. This is just the highlights of Genesis, Exodus. Read this book. Your mind will be blown. Uh, But if all of these stories are meant to hearken us back to Genesis 1 and 2 of God's people living with God himself on his mountain, then when we get to the tabernacle system of Leviticus, the high priest must be understood as a new Adam working the garden, the mountain of God. Meaning this is a tangible and we might even say architectural, physical symbol of God's mountain. When he goes into the tabernacle, we are to understand the priest as moving up into God's presence. More on that, especially in chapter 16. But for now, I agree with Michael Morales in summarizing the primary problem that Leviticus, in fact, the whole Bible seeks to answer is Psalm 24.3. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Or another way of saying what I asked us earlier, how will a just and holy God dwell in joyful communion with a sinful and rebellious people? Psalm 24 gives very clear answers to that question about people who have clean hands and clean hearts. Those answers actually are all about Leviticus also, which we now really need to get to. So if living in God's presence before Leviticus was all about God meeting with his people in high places, mediated by sacrifice and covenant, what about living in God's presence in Leviticus? Secondly, living in God's presence in Leviticus, surprise, it's the same story. The same story that has come before in Genesis and Exodus. Leviticus, like Genesis and Exodus before it, is all about meeting God in symbolic high places, mediated by sacrifice and covenant. So God gives his people here in chapters one through seven, five different sacrifices. We'll talk even more about holiness and what that has to do with being clean and unclean even more in the next several weeks. But for now, let's frame these first five sacrifices as God's means and method of grace that he gives to his people that they may dwell with him. But all five of these sacrifices are different. As we'll see in a minute, they all have different purposes. In chapter one, there is a burnt offering. This is what Stephanie read about, the burnt offering, or as it's elsewhere called, the ascension offering. Chapter two, there is a grain or tribute offering. Chapter three, the peace offering. Chapters four and five, there is a sin offering or a purification offering. And then chapters five and six is the guilt offering or the ransom or reparation offering. But before we get into the specifics of these individual sacrifices, can we just talk about sacrifices in general for a second? I think all of us got a little squeamish when Stephanie was reading about blood and flaying skin and it was weird, right? Yes, it was weird. Uh, If you're new to the Bible and are unsure about the goodness and the truthfulness of God's word to us, Uh, chapters like all of these, chapters one through seven, but especially even what you heard Stephanie read, might be unsettling. Uh, It it feels archaic. It feels barbaric. All of this blood, death everywhere, especially with some perfectly innocent bulls and goats and sheep and birds. 
Well, the first thing that can be said, and this might not make it any easier, but we need to admit is that we live in an extremely sanitized Western culture, where if we want to eat chicken or beef or pork, we just ask the food fairies to bring us the pork and it shows up magically on our plates where no animals had to die. Of course that's not what happens, but we don't think about that an animal did die for me to eat this meat. We don't have to think about it because others do it for us. Except for the hunters in this room, most of us have never killed an animal, and I think probably most of us will never kill an animal with a knife. That's hardcore. Like I was around a table with several of you earlier this week at lunch, and I just asked you, like, could you do it? Could you do it? Could you grab a sheep by the bottom of the chin and kill that thing with a knife? And none of us could, no, we were like, no, I couldn't do that, man. Couldn't do it. But if we were to live in many cultures, most cultures throughout human history and many cultures still here today, presently around the world, uh, we could all say, yeah, I could do that because we've done it our entire life. We will have all killed animals with our hands for our entire lives. So all that to say is that we should just be aware of our own cultural expectations and particular revulsions that we might have that just come of where we live and when we live. And yet, that's not to say that innocent animals do die a lot. Just like any time any animal dies for any other human use. And so what is God teaching us? What is God showing us through the sacrificing of animals? First, while spilled blood is death, like there's a whole lot of death going on, actually what blood is symbolic of in the Bible is life. In Leviticus 17, we read this. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, God says, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Blood is life. It is to be considered soberly, with care. It is only when blood is on the outside of the body that it is death, but when the blood is inside the body in the biblical understanding and imagination, that is the thing that is giving and keeping and sustaining the life. So blood is life, first of all. But second, remember, if you are walking into Eden, when you are approaching the tabernacle, if you are walking into an imaginative Eden uh, situation, you are reminded of the daily promise of Genesis 3, of on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Every day that each human chooses to listen to themselves rather than to listen and hear the wisdom of God. Every day that a human chooses to advance his or her own kingdom, and by doing so then seeks to overthrow God's kingdom, well, death awaits. Death awaits. An Israelite is immediately reminded of the reality that he or she deserves to die. In a treasonous, lifelong quest to overthrow the high king of heaven, we traitors deserve death. But God has instituted a sacrificial system in which an animal dies in the place of the people and receives their just punishment so that there might be forgiveness of sins. 
If you're still a little squeamish, hang in there. Hang around for four more weeks, but also, it's supposed to make you squeamish. Even for ancient pre-modern folks, and we'll see why in a minute. So, why are there five different sacrifices? And for what? I think these five sacrifices are given to us in order of emphasis, but they're actually not given to us in chronological order. Leviticus 9 describes Aaron and his sons, which, by the way, hang on just a second. By the way, Aaron, he's Moses' brother. Uh, And Aaron is the first of the priests from the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and his descendants, the Levites, eventually became the priests of Israel. This is why this book is called Leviticus, or the book of the Levites, right? This is, Leviticus just means the book of the priests. All right, now, Leviticus 9 shows Aaron and his sons moving through the sacrificial liturgy, the order that these sacrifices ought to go in, and it goes like this. In Leviticus 9, Aaron begins with the sin offering. Not the ascension offering from chapter one, but the, the sin offering. And the guilt offering isn't initially needed in Leviticus 9, but presumably that thing would go right with the sin offering. Then, after the sin or guilt offering, then comes the burnt, the burnt or the ascension offering. Then the grain or tribute offering, then the peace offering. So let's move through these and then swing back around to why Leviticus 1 through 7 has them out of chronological order. The first sacrifice is a sin offering or a guilt offering. When a person of Israel sins against the terms of the covenant in which God lives with his people, just like Adam and all of his descendants would come after him, when they sin against the terms of the covenant, that person is now out of fellowship with God. Banished. Cannot know him, will not know him, cannot Uh, live with him in joy or in peace. We'll think a lot more about why that is in the next two or three weeks. But the Israelite would then bring an animal so that that animal's lifeblood might atone for his sins. A popular definition of atonement has been going around the internet lately. Um, And one definition means to atone means to cover. Like if you cover my lunch bill, you have atoned my check. You have covered it. You've paid the the thing that I owed. And that's partly there, but I don't think that's all the way there. Atonement is much, much more than that. In Leviticus, uh, it is used much more broadly. In Leviticus, the blood both reconciles, it restores right relationship, which is where our English word comes from, for for atonement, at-one-ment, literally, at-one-ment. It is when two parties who were not reconciled now become at-one. They're reconciled. But it does more than that. It also purifies. The life of the animal's blood cleans the sin of the person. So how does it reconcile? In the Levitical law, the idea of a ransom appears really regularly. The animal or the blood of the animal is given as a ransom. How do we use ransom or where do ransoms appear in our culture? Some bad guy kidnaps a member of Uh, the family of some good guy, and then makes the good guy uh, pay some amount of money. The innocent party pays the guilty party in order to reconcile, right? That's not a biblical ransom. In Exodus 21, if a guy owns an ox, 
and that ox gets free and gores some man's wife. Uh, The ox will be put to death. But because it was an accident, the ox owner is not held responsible for that death. But if it was known previously that this ox has gotten out and has gored others and the ox owner has done nothing to prevent that from happening again, he has not given um, importance to other people's life and safety, then, and, and then that ox gets out again and then gores that man's wife, now the ox and the ox owner are both condemned. And so what can happen is if this now new widower chooses to, he does not have to, but he can choose to, this brokenhearted man who has just lost his wife, he can, if he wants to, he can choose to place a ransom on this, condemns man, this condemned man's life, the ox owner's life, in which the ox owner can now pay a fee to him, some amount of money that this man decides, however much it was, uh, it can never pay for his his wife who has died, but it is a fee of restitution, of reconciliation to the widower. So unlike our ransoms, where the innocent party pays the guilty party, here the guilty party pays a fee to the innocent party for reconciliation. The ransom in no way, right, can fully compensate for the loss of the man's life, but he will now no longer hold this man legally liable for the death of his wife. This is the sin offering. The guilty parties, they pay a ransom to the innocent party for reconciliation. But the blood, so we have reconciliation, but the blood also is sprinkled on the altar. It washes and cleanses the sin. It purifies, which we'll track more throughout the book. And it should be said here in a sin offering, and in fact, all of the other offerings and sacrifices, the priest does not kill the animal. Did you guys catch that if you were reading through Leviticus this week? In all of these sacrifices, every single person is the one doing the sacrificing. The person brings the animal up and then kills the animal, and then it's the priest who gathers the blood and then sprinkles the altar with the blood. The priest cannot pay the person's ransom. The priest just administers the cleansing. More there soon. But a bit about the animals used in all of this and all the other sacrifices. First thing, bulls are expensive. So these sacrifices make clear that if you could not afford a bull, then you could bring in something that is cheaper, like a goat or a sheep or a bird, like a turtle dove or a pigeon. It isn't the case that if you committed like a really serious sin, then you bring a bull. But if you commit a sin that is not so bad, you bring in a bird. No. God is just giving a way to accept the earnest sacrifices of both the wealthy and the poor. In fact, it's the turtle doves or pigeons that Mary and Joseph can afford at the temple in Luke 2. But secondly, and importantly, all of these animals are to be unblemished, meaning there is absolutely nothing wrong with them. You couldn't just say, well, this bull has a broken leg. It's now completely worthless to me, so I'll go sacrifice this thing to God or the sheep is blind, or this goat has some sort of sickness or other condition. No, this animal was to represent the clean and pure worship and life of the person. It was an, and an unblemished animal then was a costly animal. So Morales asks, was the worshiper seeking to approach God without cost under the delusion that God could not search his heart? Of course not. 
The point of all this is a heart that knows, that loves, that worships God. It is not some worshipless ritual. Which then brings us to the second sacrifice. If you have now made a sacrifice for sin to bring, bring reconciliation and to bring cleansing. Secondly, the burnt offering or the ascension offering, which is what Stephanie read from in chapter one. The person brings a blameless animal up to the altar, which by the way, Doug, you got this? Yeah, all right, some, some people in Pennsylvania uh, made like a replica of the tabernacle. This is not an actual picture, right? Uh, but this is, uh, this is what it would probably look like. Crazy, huh? Uh, so what you do is you just kind of walk up to this, the altar in front with your own animal. Uh, and in the same way that you would do with your sin or guilt offering, this person would lean his hand. You, you read this phrase a lot in, Gen- in Leviticus 1 through 7. The person would lean his hand, which is kind of, he'd probably like press his hand, putting his weight on the head of the animal. Uh, this is like to identify himself with the animal. And in the sin offering, the life of that animal the, is transferred to the person. It is the purity of that animal now given to the impurity of the person. Here, though, the person identifies with the animal in that he becomes the purity of the animal. There is impurity to purity. It's different than the sin offering. And what happens to the animal? After this animal is killed, then the animal is put on top of the altar and the whole thing is consumed, burned up. And what happens to a burning animal? There's smoke that goes up into the sky. The person, having now symbolically identified with this animal, becomes the animal. And in a way, symbolically, goes up to the heavens to live, to dwell, to worship God in his presence. We might say of the burnt offering or the ascension offering, who shall dwell or who shall ascend on the mountain of the Lord? Here's the thing, the sacrificial system, just like we said about in 1 John 1 and 2, is not just about getting your sins forgiven. Not just about the theological category of justification, of being made right with God. That's not the point. Justification is only a means to an end. Having your sins forgiven is just a means to an end. What is the end? To know God. The sin offering is a means to an end. First, uh, bringing reconciliation, but now in the ascension offering, now the person can, having his sins cleansed and reconciled, can now, identifying with his animal, ascend to the heavens, to be with God, to dwell with him. But then, in the tribute and peace offerings, now he can know and commune with God. The burnt offering or the ascension offering is about God's people ascending to God, morning and evening, like you could look over to the tabernacle structure from wherever you were and just see smoke going up. As an Israelite, you might look up and just see many, many Israelites ascending to the mountain of God in worship. But now that all of these people have ascended into God's presence, you don't come to the throne empty-handed. You don't go to visit the king with empty hands. In the tribute or grain offering, the grain offering is a simple bread in chapter three, or in chapter two. Uh, It's just a simple bread made of wheat, oil, salt, and frankincense. 
And like an unblemished animal, frankincense was a very expensive spice. It makes this bread really costly. It's maybe like if you made an entire Thanksgiving meal with all of the trimmings, an expensive turkey, and then after you finish the whole thing, you lit it on fire. Uh, That's what the grain offering is. Uh, And with the frankincense, though, here, like the fat of the animals, makes the whole thing smell really good. It smells delightful. In fact, the phrase used in Leviticus over and over and over again is, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So you make this meal that you give to the Lord. You have given him expensive oils and spices. And then lastly, Aaron demonstrates in Leviticus 9, the peace offering. First described in chapter 3 and then further explained in chapter 7, the people are to kill an animal and then with that animal presented alongside with unleavened bread, the priests then give back much of the meat and the bread to be eaten and shared amongst families and friends. And just like many cultures still today, the way that you sealed or ratified a covenant was over a meal, a meal of friendship. This is the peace offering. Just as David says in Psalm 23, He's talking about how good God is, is a good shepherd. He says, you prepare a table before me in the sight of my enemies. David may very likely, when he was writing Psalm 23, may very likely be remembering the dozens of times that he had shared a peace offering meal with his friends and family in the presence of God, communing with God as the culmination of this entire sacrificial system. You come and you get your sins forgiven. Then having had that been done, then you ascend to dwell and live with God as you then bring him worship and hands of praise that you then might eat with him, dwell with him in peace, joy, and in friendship. All right. So I obviously bit off way more than I could chew here tonight, uh, but let's briefly answer our third and perhaps most important heading now as we close. Living in God's presence now. What in the world does any of this have to do with anything? Well, we'll spend way more time in the book of Hebrews in the following weeks. But in explaining the entire sacrificial system in Leviticus, Hebrews 8.5 says that all of these things, everything that we just read and considered, the author of Hebrews says all of these things serve as a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. That is... All of these physical structures, all of these sacrifices reveal what the actual substance looks like. Like you can tell, if we went outside, you can tell if I held up my hand and the sun was casting a shadow on the ground, you can tell what my hand looks like by looking at the shadow. You can see how many fingers I'm holding up by looking at the shadow. The tabernacle system, the entire structure, everything that we just considered is a shadow. It reveals what the substance actually looks like, but it ain't the substance. None of that is actually the thing that we are meant to see and understand. But if none of this is what we are meant to see and understand, what is it? Well, going through these sacrifices in the same order, remember how a Levitical ransom is the guilty party paying a fee of restitution or of reparation to the innocent party that they might be reconciled? When Jesus is teaching his disciples about his death and coming kingdom in Mark 10, he says this about himself. And maybe you've never understood this verse. 
quite like you're about to understand it. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This just blows Leviticus out, out of the water. Grace upon grace upon grace. This would be like the man whose ox killed this other man's wife. The, the offended party, the man, the now widower, not only just offering a ransom, he did not have to, not only just offering a ransom, but then paying this man's ransom himself. That's unheard of. That doesn't ever happen in Leviticus. And then, even better than all of that, this man, the offended party, the innocent man, comes both with the blood of an animal being the blood of himself. He comes as the sacrificial animal and he comes as the priest who will administer the cleansing. He represents both sides of the covenant at the exact same time. Both God and man bringing at one moment atonement, reconciliation, purifying, cleansing, friendship. Which is Paul's entire point, point of like incredulity in Romans 5. His mind is blown as Paul is considering the realities of the gospel. He can barely wrap his head around the glory and wonder of grace when he says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And this guy didn't even offend me. He's offended somebody else, but maybe I would consider uh, making atonement for this guy, but probably not even then. Though perhaps for a good person would one dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The ultimately offended party coming to hit the offender's giving and offering himself. Reconciliation, ransom, purifying, cleansing, washing, atonement. This is the gospel. And again, not just merely for reconciliation's sake, but then a few verses before that, Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A peace offering, a friendship offering instituted and ongoingly remembered through a covenantal meal of peace, of belonging, of friendship. I've quoted one pastor a couple of times who says that the story of humanity can be summed up as the story of two meals. The first meal where the tempter came to Adam and Eve as he daily comes to us, inviting us to eat and live. Eat and live. All the while, like Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs, hiding a pile of corpses around the corner. Left to ourselves, we eat that meal of death every single day. Choosing the glory of self over the glory of God and even loving that death, the death that that meal brings every single day. But God. A second Adam comes, speaking a word more clearly, more loudly, more courageously than the voice of the serpent whose head he has now crushed. And the bread of his body and the blood of his cup 
Now offering himself as a better husband to a doubting and fearful bride, he says, eat and live. Put your hands on me. Trust me. I have given you myself that we might have peace, that we might have friendship. By his grace, we eat the meal of life, choosing the glory of the God who creates and saves and redeems over and against the glory of self even becoming to love the meal of life that he brings and that he offers, his purity identifying and given to our impurity. And we are united to Christ. We're united to Christ, pressing, leaning on the head of the lamb, identifying wholly and entirely with him, our impurity given to his purity that we might ascend the mountain of the Lord. Ephesians 1, Paul says, In him, he has blessed us with every spiritual, place, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has brought us in. We have ascended on high with Christ as we are united to him. Whereas Paul says in Romans 12, 1, By the mercies of God, we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not one of death any longer, but a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Every single day for the rest of our life becomes a daily ascension offering, a daily peace offering. And we might know him in peace and friendship. Remember last week, now being saved, redeemed, brought to life by God, now we belong to God. Bought with a price. So now our entire lives are lives of spiritual worship, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not perfectly, but fully, entirely. It's been said that a pig is way more committed to your bacon and eggs than a chicken. Way more committed. Full devotion. That's Leviticus. Full devotion. Consecrated lives of love and of worship. The pig has given the entire self. That's Leviticus. Except for the whole bacon thing. We'll get there. We'll get to the bacon stuff. But man, maybe for the rest of your lives now, every time you smell the aroma of bacon, that's me. That is me. What is my life now? Ascending with Christ on high now to live a life of consecrated, holy, devoted worship to the Lord. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? The king of glory. His name is Jesus. And then we, those who belong heart, soul, mind, body to Jesus, that soul that on Jesus Jesus hath leaned for repose, he will not, no, will not desert to his foes. He will keep his people to the end because it is his work of sacrifice and worship that we are bound to, that we ascend with, that he has brought us to know God and to know him nearly. This is Leviticus. We got a long way to go. We did way too much here. I told my wife, this is going to be a little long. She was like, don't do it. I said, I I have to. It's a little long. So thanks for hanging in there. Uh, Read this book. If you didn't read any of Leviticus this last week, pick it up in chapter 8 and just start reading. We're going to try to get through chapters 8 through 10 uh, next Sunday together. 
Until then, let's pray that God would help us understand and to live lives consecrated to him. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us help, that you would make it clear to us how our sin, how our self-worship has separated us from you, and yet you have brought us near. You have not only brought us near, but you have brought us up from death to life and into the very heavenly places of Christ our King, now seated with him. Lord, we pray that understanding these foreign and strange realities of the book of Leviticus might cause us to be brought so near to you in love, in worship, trusting in the blood of Christ shed on our behalf, perhaps more so than we ever have in our lives. We pray for those with us who have perhaps not trusted in this blood, that you would bring them near. Those outside the people now brought into the people, outside of Christ now brought into Christ. We pray that you would cause us all to live and dwell more and at peace and in joy and in love and in worship for you with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.